so last week we looked at God manifesting himself in multiple ways to multiple people at multiple times and for this morning if we may let's continue working our way through the book of Exodus and let's start today's live service if we may in chapter 25 and the Lord spake unto Moses saying speak unto the children of Israel that they bring me an offering of every man that giveth it willingly with his heart you shall take my offering a willing heart God loves a gracious giver a sincere giver and of course verses 1 and 2 totally dismantle Calvinism because they don't believe in free will they believe that a person is born in sins which of course I certainly agree with but although you are born in sins dead in trespasses and sins you still have free will to do good or to do evil and the Lord spake unto Moses saying once again this is oral tradition from the mouth of the Lord later written down by Moses speak unto the children of Israel be the mediator between God and man Christ Jesus is the mediator between God and man that they bring me an offering of every man that giveth it willingly with his heart you shall take my offering so the gift was given from the people via Moses for the Lord, on behalf of the Lord, it was to be given willingly. No coercion. No, well, we have to do this anyway, so let's just get on with it. No formal ritualistic religion like the Hail Mary. Like reciting the Lord's Prayer, which should be called the Disciples' Prayer. No vain repetitions like going to Mass and listening to the priest recite the 26-minute Mass, which it was after Vatican II. It had to come from the heart. It had to be genuine. It had to be sincere. It's like salvation. You are to be fully persuaded in your own minds that the Lord Jesus Christ died for your sins, was buried, and resurrected. Once you have fully received that and are fully persuaded that such took place, you are saved. It's not just say a prayer after me and you are saved. No prayer saves you. It's not get baptized and then you are saved. It's to be fully persuaded in your own mind. And here you are to give it willingly, like I say, without any coercion and one final time. Such a verse completely overthrows Calvinism. I remember maybe two or three years ago, a friend of our ministry designed a banner for us and posted it to us from California. A huge banner, probably five foot high. And our dear brother in Singapore had the privilege of holding the banner when the wind came along, it would blow, it would move. It was like a sailboard. Yeah. And this brother very kindly built this banner for us. Got saved very late in life. And for a short period of time, was friendly with our ministry. And then one day, unfortunately, he got involved with Calvinism. And he went south, like they say. And he was leaving comments on my channel. Another brother in the UK, a friend of mine, was reading the comments and was basically asking me why is such and such posting such statements attacking free will and I said well, maybe he is exploring Calvinism but he can't be that idiotic can I say to embrace Calvinism and this brother in the UK said well maybe he has embraced it and of course he had embraced it over the next six months he deleted many of his non-Calvinist friends last I heard he's a full five-point Calvinist 
No free will, predestination, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints, unconditional election, the wicked tulip. But here, God's elect people have free will. And I showed this verse to the brother in question, and he read this verse, and he said, well, that's for the Jews under the Old Testament. It makes no difference. If God's elect people in the Old Testament had free will, God's elect people in the New Testament would also have free will. One more time. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, that they bring me an offering of every man that giveth it willingly. With his heart ye shall take my offering. Paul tells you to present your bodies as living sacrifice unto the Lord, which is your reasonable service. For the next seven chapters, incidentally, which you're going to read has no direct application to the church today. I got an email maybe a month ago, or just under a month, from a very angry party. Livid party was upset with me that I made the statement how all of the Bible is to us, but it's not all for us. Meaning that most of this book has no direct doctrinal application to anyone living today. It's all for us, in the sense that we can read, feed on it, and get a blessing, but it's not all for us. In a doctrinal sense, and I heard that expression maybe 12 years ago from some of the greatest American preachers over the past 100 years. When I heard that for the first time, I thought, yes, they're right. The Bible is all to us, but it's not all for us. And this person was asking me, why do I make such a statement? Why do I believe such a statement? And to cut a long story short, I asked a question, do you keep the Sabbath? In fact, she asked me the question in her email, did I keep the Sabbath? And before I got back to that question, I said to her, do you think it's right to execute people for not keeping the Sabbath? And of course, had she said no, she would have proved my point. And had she said yes, she would have looked like a real fanatic, a real Pharisee. What does she do? Nothing at all. Didn't even bother to respond. But that was the whole point. And these verses concerning offering in the Old Testament, literal, for the New Testament, spiritual. It's all to us, but it's not all for us. And I stand by that statement. Look at verse 3. And this is the offering which you shall take of them, gold and silver and brass, gold, silver and brass, three metals. Gold, silver and brass are the highest commodities in the world today. If you think of the Olympics, if you think of an athlete, he or she can get one of three rewards. Gold, representing the first, obviously, coming in first. Silver, representing coming in second. And bronze, coming in third, but here referred to as brass. On top of that, when you read about gold in the scripture, that represents deity, of course. Silver deals with the words of the Lord, of course, and also redemption. And brass is a picture of judgment, like the, the brass in altar and the serpent, which was connected from John chapter 3. So all these types have deeper meanings. So at best, you're going to get a spiritual application for anyone living today, if they were to read such verses. But for the Old Testament, you've got a literal application. A literal tabernacle, the creation of a tabernacle, the tabernacle. And again, verse 3. And this is the offering which you shall take of them, gold and silver and brass. Could have been commended from the Egyptians. God told the Jews to borrow of the Egyptians, this and that, and gold to this day remains priceless up until recent years. World currencies were based on gold. I'm not sure that's still the case, but if you have gold or silver and your currency is in trouble, 
you have some collateral, don't you? Gold, silver and brass, and blue and purple and scarlet and fine linen and goat's hair. So you've got now three colours. Blue, representing heaven, of course. Purple and scarlet. Purple represents royalty. Scarlet, sacrifice. Also, if you think of the Book of Acts, you have a lady there who was a specialist when it came to making clothes. She had a business making clothes. If you think of Revelation, Scarlet in Revelation speaks about a whore on a set of hills. And I'll explain the true and account of it as we go along. Blue, purple, scarlet, fine linen, picturing one's righteousness, and goat's hair, and ram skins dyed red. A ram skin dyed red produces leather, and badger skins, and sheet and wood. Sheet and wood is insect proof, could withstand attacks from insects. Sheet and wood is a type of Christ. It's like Jesus. Cannot be contaminated. This box, if you will, is a picture of the ark, is a picture of our salvation. Nothing can touch it. Once you are saved, you are sealed in the beloved. Oil for the light. Spices for anointing oil and for sweet incense. Oil is a picture of the Holy Ghost. Oil for the light. To light the lampstand, the menorah. Again, you've got seven chapters, which will take us probably four months to read through, outlining how the Lord wants to be worshipped. And yet, you haven't got a fraction of material dealing with creation. Did you ever think about that? I watched a debate a few nights ago. An atheist debating a creationist. And the atheist was struggling to comprehend simple stuff like creation. Like Noah's Ark. Like kinds. Not species, but kinds. And the atheist said this. But there's no material to tell us how God made the universe. And I thought, yes, because he doesn't want you to know. How he made the universe. You couldn't understand it anyway. What he wants you to know is how to worship him. Chapter 25, chapter 26, chapter 27, chapter 28, chapter 20, uh, 29, chapter 30, chapter 31. In great detail. In ways that we Gentiles don't really understand. I sat down two nights ago in preparation for this morning's message. And I'll be honest with you. Most of what I read didn't really register with me. I've read the Bible through many times like the Old Testament. But this is the first time in 17 years that it's come or it's come around for me to study and preach through the book of Exodus. It's all to us, but it's not all for us. Parts of these chapters are a great mystery to me. And yet the more I read it, the more I start to comprehend it. Onyx stones and stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate. So the high priest would wear a breastplate with stones in the plurality, like 12 stones, 12 tribes of Israel, or two groups of six, like 66 books of the Bible. And let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell among them. That was David's wish, to build a, not a sanctuary, not a tent, but a temple. And the Lord said to David, you are a bloody man. You've killed many people, and he had done. Interesting, he never mentioned the women, but the killing. And many people think of Solomon being a ladies' man, and he was. But how about David? Many women, concubines, around 30 children from all of his women. But that wasn't the issue. The issue was, you've killed many people. 
But on top of that, your son, type of Jesus Christ, will build me a physical temple. As of right now, we are the temple of the Holy Ghost because we believe on the son of David. Jesus Christ is son of God in relation to his father, son of man in relation to Adam, son of David in relation to David. Let them make me a sanctuary. Had he not said that, this would not have been possible. Had the Lord not revealed himself to mankind, mankind would have never known about him, been able to relate to him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirits and in truth, that I may dwell among them. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, dwelt, tabernacled among us, and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Take the time to read these verses, cross-reference these verses, take them literally, and you will see that they do harmonise. Not in a literal sense, but in a spiritual sense. So the first eight verses are dealing with relationship, intimacy. Around this time, is probably 1491 BC, according to my understanding of James Usher's chronology, and the Jews are slowly but surely becoming a people. They were delivered out of Egypt. That was no big deal for the Lord. He destroyed a nation. Genesis chapter 1, let there be light, and there was light. Evening and the morning, first day, evening and the morning, second day, evening and the morning, third day. It could have taken the Lord six minutes to create the universe. He gives you just two chapters, at best, about creation, and a few others in the Psalms and elsewhere. And for Darwinists, evolutionists, they detest that. They hate that. They find that repulsive. They want to study species, species. They want to understand chromosomes. They want to understand our DNA and stuff like that, which is understandable, but that's not what God is interested in. He wants anyone, anywhere to spend time reading Exodus 25 to 31 to worship him, to go back in time, 1500 years BC, to understand what it meant for a Jew, a real Jew, to worship the Lord. And just to think about this, let's keep reading. Look at verse 9. According to all that, I show thee after the pattern of the tabernacle, and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall ye make. Not one word will drop. If you love me, keep my commandments. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Not one tittle. And here, verse 9, fits in quite nicely with Matthew chapter 5. I just partly cited it. Uh, Matthew five eighteen, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. So here, Jesus Christ, Matthew five eighteen, is making the case that he's come to fulfill the law. If I look at verse 17 from Matthew chapter 5, think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill, to complete. For verily I say unto you, Till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. So everything has to be fulfilled, and it will be fulfilled, and Christ came to fulfill the law. But here, 25.9, book of Exodus, according to all that I show thee, after the pattern of the tabernacle, and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall you make it. Don't leave anything out. If you love me, keep my words. 
John 14, if you love me, keep my commandments. John chapter 15, and here the Lord is dictating to Moses. Moses is writing everything down. Quite a task, incidentally. Mm. If you think of D.L. Moody, the great Chicago preacher, had very little education, was never ordained, was despised by most clergymen because of just that, and he would preach, and he would speak so fast that, on average, he would have five stenographers, five stenographers trying to keep up with him. And after one meeting, a guy walked over to him and said, I've been listening to you, Mr. Moody, and I've counted 86 grammatical errors that have come out of your mouth. And old Moody said uh, to this man in question, well, look at this, and he stuck his tongue out in the man's face, and he said, this tongue is being used for the glory of God. What is your tongue being used for? And the guy couldn't answer it. But God is speaking to Moses. Moses is writing everything down. Those words will be preserved by Levites over many generations. God speaks to the apostles. They write every word down. And they too, and their disciples and affiliates and friends, are going to copy down the words of the apostles. Inspiration, preservation. Nothing is left out. Don't add to the word of the Lord. Don't subtract from the word of the Lord. Revelation 22 says if you do, you're in big trouble. Adding, subtracting. Look at verse 10. And they shall make an ark of sheet and wood. Two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof, and a cubit and a half the height thereof. So I sat down last night trying to work out these measurements, and I was surprised to discover that two and a half cubits is roughly 3.75 feet. One and a half cubits is around 2.25 feet. And again, one cubit and a half is 2.25 feet. God sometimes does things on a small scale. Sometimes he does things on a large scale. And they shall make group activity. And they shall make an ark of sheet and wood. God is dictating to Moses. God here, in the person of Jesus Christ, the carpenter of all carpenters. Two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof. Three and a half feet and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof. Two and a half feet, or just under, and a cubit and a half the height thereof. Two and a half feet. Also, sheet and wood is also known and referred to as acacia or cassia. It can be pronounced both ways. Acacia or cassia is a very expensive wood, very common in Arabia. But sheetum, found here in your King James Bible, like I say, was insect proof and was built designed preserved used in such a way to stop any kind of contamination because this tabernacle this box uh, that's not too crude to use was to be mobilized was to be moved around put down and it was imperative that nothing or no one could get inside of it look at verse 11 and thou shalt overlay it with pure gold within and without shalt thou overlay it and shalt make up on it a crown of gold round about. Cover it with gold. Going back to verse 3. Because gold, one more time, is the highest commodity of metals. Gold represents deity. There is nothing or no one higher than Almighty God. And like I say, gold is still the highest commodity. And on top of that, once this gold 
was overlaid within and without and on top of it you had a very expensive box you had a very expensive commodity and that's one of the reasons why the priests not only carried it but guarded it thou shalt overlay it with pure gold within and without shalt thou overlay it and shalt make upon it a crown of gold round about it's priceless it's precious and thou shalt cast four rings of gold for it and put them in the four corners thereof and two rings shall be in the in the one side of it and two rings on the other side of it you're going to carry this thing around the levites are going to carry it on their shoulders i might add this thing is mobile look at it again 12 and thou singular 11 and thou singular 10 and they plural but 12 again and thou shalt cast four rings of gold for it four rings four hooks perhaps and put them in the four corners thereof and two rings shall be in the one side of it and two rings in the four sides of it four points if you will four hooks if you will two long poles to lift this thing up and move it 13 and thou shalt make staves of sheet and wood and overlay them with gold staves old english for a thin narrow piece of timber timber being wood of course but it's narrow narrow is the way many there be that are called or many called few chosen but many there be matthew chapter 7 that wants to enter in to the narrow gate and won't be able to broad is the way wide is the gate many there be which go in thereat that kind of a thing and thou singular again and thou shalt make staves of sheet and wood acacia or acacia wood and overlay them with gold gold wood almost reminiscent to first corinthians chapter three wood hay stubble concern the judgment seats of the lord and thou shalt put the staves into the rings by the sides of the ark that the ark may be born with them the staves shall be in the rings of the ark they shall not be taken from it and thou shalt put into the ark the testimony which i shall give thee the testimony the testimony would consist of three items number one pot of manna number two the tables of the law number three aaron's rod as of right now if you care to know the ark of the testimony ark of the covenants is in heaven i've heard people say it's on the earth i was told just a couple of days ago someone said this to me that they had heard i'm not sure where <laughs> but they had heard somebody had said hearsay of course speculation but mischief makers were suggesting that the ark of the covenant was in putin's home which is a joke of course or in mecca it may have been saudi arabia which is a joke of course abyssinia abyssinia ethiopia mm. which is a joke of course mm. according to the book of revelation the ark of the covenants ark of the testament is in heaven but here it's very much on the earth 17 and thou shalt make a mercy seat of pure gold two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof mercy seat so i got thinking about this last night mercy seats moses's seat matthew 23 judgment seat of christ second corinthians chapter 5 satan's seat revelation chapter 2 a seat what does a seat represent authority the beamer seat go back to the first century you had people running 
to win a reward using my, or going back to my Olympic uh, analogy, gold, silver, and bronze. And the first through, first past the post, got gold, second got silver, third got bronze. Judgment seat, Satan's seat, Satan's authority. Again, you got a legitimate seat here referred to as the mercy seat, but it's quickly counterfeited. Like Satan's seat, Revelation chapter 2, the Antichrist's seat. Revelation speaks about Jerusalem being known as Sodom and Egypt. Going back to Daniel, suggesting that the Antichrist could be a Sodomite, possibly. But here, 17, And thou shalt make a mercy seat of pure gold. One commentator believes that when Christ returns, he will sit on the mercy seat during the thousand year reign. And thou shalt make two cherubims of gold, 18, of beaten work, shalt thou make them. In the two ends of the mercy seat, two cubits and a half to be the length thereof, 17, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof. Back to the measurements again. But 17 and 18 fascinates me. You will make a mercy seat of pure gold. God comes over the mercy seat, doesn't sit on the mercy seat, but he's there. Second advent, thousand year reign of the Lord Jesus Christ, rapture of the church, the beamer seat, you've got a literal judgment seat where Christ sits and judges the church and it's probably fair to say that at the great white throne judgment he's sitting again but this time to judge the lost if you think of a courtroom the judge the magistrate sits on the bench or go back pre-1965 I've seen many black and white movies and I remember one I watched a while ago based on a true story of a criminal who was convicted of murder and he goes into the courtroom and it's the end of the trial and the judge comes in wearing the white wig as they still do in British courts. And he starts to explain that the criminal, the assailant, person in question, has been found guilty of a particular crime. And this old movie dealt with murder. And he says, I have to pass the judgments of death. But before he said that, he reached into his box under his table, the bench, and got a black cloth. cloth. Yeah. And the moment he put that black cloth over the white wig, you knew what was coming. Mm-hmm. And I thought about that movie many times over the year, and every time I th- over over the years, and every time I think about that movie, it turns my blood cold because I know I know what is coming. One moment he's wearing white, picturing judgment, of course, fairness, I guess, and then just like that. The black wig cloth comes out, picturing death, judgment. And the moment he puts it on his head, you know what is coming. And they would say something along the lines of, you'll be hung by the neck until you die. May God have mercy on your soul. 17. And thou shalt make a mercy seat of pure gold. We need mercy each and every day. It's not the Lord's will to just destroy people for the fun of it. I wonder sometimes if our Lordship Salvation people know what they are really saying when they speak about hellfire and judgment and I believe that and I preach that and you're going to burn, you're going to burn, you're going to burn without Christ. But I'll tell you something, I'm in no rush for the judgment seat myself and God was in no rush to punish his own people for their sins back in the wilderness. And thou shalt make a mercy seat of pure gold, picturing deity, going back to the hypothesis that perhaps one day Christ will actually sit 
on the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies and during the thousand year reign. It's true that when he went back to heaven, Hebrews chapter 9, he took his blood with him and sprinkled it in the Holy of Holies. Keeps in mind as well, if you will, that what goes on on earth is going on in heaven. Whatever you bound on earth is bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth is loosed in heaven. I don't understand that. But it does seem to imply that what we do on the earth is being replicated in heaven. Going back to the seven angels. Revelation speaks about the seven angels and the book of Revelation is addressed to those angels. Not churches per se or pastors per se which most apostates teach and preach. But that book is written to angels. Angels which were assigned to such churches. Two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof. So uh, two cubits around three feet and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof around two feet or thereabouts. And thou shalt make two cherubims of gold. Keep your hand there and go back to chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. You were told very clearly from Exodus chapter 20, uh, like in verse 4, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above. That would include God, angels, so on and so forth. Or that is in the earth beneath, reptiles, livestock, so on and so forth. Or that is in the water under the earth, fish, dolphins, whales. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. Go back to chapter 25. So you are presented with a discrepancy of some kind. Chapter 20 made the case very clearly that you couldn't create any image of anything that was in heaven above. And yet here you were told to do just that. 2018. This will be the exception therefore. Not the rule. And thou shalt make two cherubims of gold. Now for memory. When the temple was built under Solomon. His crowning glory of course. The height of the cherubims were. I think for memory. Nine feet high. Massive things. But here these are tiny replicas limited in size of course two cherubims of gold cherubims are angels of course higher form of angel of beaten work shalt thou make them in the two ends of the mercy seat one on the left one on the right and make one cherub on the end and the other cherub on the other end even the mercy seat shall you make the cherubims on the two ends thereof picturing God's eyes seeing everything Hearing everything. Hebrews speaks about angels being ministering, ministering spirits sent out. Going back to Revelation. Angel of Ephesus. Angel of Laodicea. Angel of Sardis. Philadelphia. So on and so forth. They see and hear an awful lot. They're not infallible. They're not omnipresent. They're not omniscient or omnipresent. But they are very powerful. Nonetheless, only God is infallible, impeccable omnipresent, omniscient, and omnipotent. But here, these cherubims, two, not three, are to be put on either end of the mercy seat, the mercy seat covered with gold. And these angels, a fraction in size, if you think of the Temple of Solomon's, are representing not only the angelic world, but are watching what is taking place. 
what it's probably like, or what this probably really means in essence, is that what was being built on the earth had already been built in heaven. Revelation speaks about an altar, incense. Uh, Acts chapter 10 speaks about Cornelius's prayers coming up for a memorial. You've got incense uh, mentioned many times in the Old Testament. You've got a tabernacle, which we are reading about this morning. You've got a temple, which is also mentioned over in Revelation, which seems to suggest to me that, again, what the Jews were building on the earth was already built in heaven. I don't really understand that. I guess it's like a mirror to some extent. You look into the mirror and you turn left and the image in the mirror goes left or you go right and the image in the mirror goes right. And in a way that I do not understand what is going on in the earth, what they are building on the earth, going back to the pattern of the tabernacle, verse 9, is in some way a duplication of what is perhaps going on in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth is loosed. Whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven. To go beyond that is really difficult to explain. 19, one more time and I'll close. And make one cherub on the one end and the other cherub on the other end. So this, this is the exception to creating anything. And of course, once you create something, you are indirectly inviting idolatry. Because the Jews were known to worship created objects. And later on, Aaron, Israel's first priest, was also guilty of doing just that. But here the Lord makes an exception. And of course, you're way back in 14, 1500 BC. Idolatry hasn't yet come onto the scene. God always allows people the chance to do what is right. To be offered the chance to receive his goodness. But over time, people start to turn from that. And create opportunities for sin. And cause others to sin as well. One cherub, one end. Other cherub on the other end. Even of the mercy seat. Shall ye make the cherubims on the two ends thereof? So this was permitted. This was allowed. And as long as you followed this to the letter, back in the day you were fine. But of course Gideon got involved with idolatry. And First John chapter 5. John warns against idols. Apart from this piece of scripture, as I stand here this morning, I can't think of any other exception. Where the Lord would allow objects to be created that were found in heaven. And to be a part of the tabernacle, which is also called the tent during David's days, the temple, which would eventually become the holy place and the most holy place. So this is the only exception as far as I am aware. So just a very quick uh, wrap up to what we've looked at over the last 40 something minutes. 19 verses dealing with a physical building, a physical creation, the Worship of Israel is now in full swing. They have been delivered from Egypt. That was the easy part. They have been blessed. That was the easy part. They have leaders. That was the easy part. The calling, the anointing. But now it gets a bit more complicated. A bit more detailed. Seven chapters dealing with physical worship. But you won't even find seven verses specifically dealing with creation. Because God isn't interested in Explaining himself to you when it comes to how he made everything. But he's more interested in explaining to the Jews and vicariously the church today how he wanted to be worshipped back in biblical times. And we'll close it there uh, next week. Continue from verse 20. Please go back to verses 1 and 2 from Exodus chapter 25. And the Lord spake unto Moses saying, Speak unto the children of Israel that they bring me an offering of every man that giveth it willingly with his heart you shall take my offering. The Lord loves a cheerful giver. And every time I read this verse, 
I think about people in history, I think about wealthy people that got sick, that died, left very interesting wills, and even from the grave, they were controlling the money. People like Bing Crosby, when he died, he left around $100 million, and his second wife thought she would get it all upon his death, and it was put together in such a way that she got around $100,000 a year. Old Bing was controlling the purse strings from the grave. That's not what God is interested in. He wants you to give all of yourself to him, not to control it, not to be mean and uh, manipulative. If you think about when Princess Diana died back in 1997, Prince Charles eventually went to France to bring the body back to the UK. What wasn't so well known at the time was that the cost to repatriate Diana back to Britain, fell on the crown, and the crown, being the queen, of course, was able to claim it back off the insurance. Mm -hmm. That's how these people work, you see. Every penny is counted, and that's why if you save a penny, it becomes a pound, so on and so forth. I remember also reading a report that when she divorced Prince Charles, she was given $17 million from the queen to cover the cost of the divorce, but because Diana hadn't made a will, that money went back to the crown, back to the queen. That's not what God is interested in. It's like salvation. Either you give everything to the Lord, like he's given everything to you, or don't bother. This morning, it's Sunday, and I can think of two cabinet ministers, two Catholic cabinet ministers, which have been newly appointed this week, both Roman Catholic, and they're going to be going to Mass around now. Very powerful men, very wealthy men, and yet they have no assurance of salvation, and they will be kneeling down when the host goes up, being the way for a course, and they'll be standing up when the bell is rung, they will be participating in a religious ritual. Wealthy, powerful, and yet they have no assurance of salvation. Nearly every religion on the face of the earth treats their people with contempt, leaves them hanging. You can't know if you're saved or not. Look at verse 1 again. And the Lord spake unto Moses, probably in Hebrew, Speak unto the children of Israel. You are the mediator between man and God, like the Lord Jesus Christ. That they bring me an offering. Bring me an offering, a physical offering. It goes back to Cain. It goes back to Abel. You've got two groups of people. You have the Canaanites, if you will. And Cain's descendants are a works-based group of people. Cain would bring works to the Lord. He would bring fruit to the Lord. And you have people like Abel, who, who would bring a lamb to the Lord. Two groups of people. One brings their works, hopes their works will be accepted of the Lord, like Cain, like 99% of the world's religions. And you've got someone like Abel, who brings a lamb to the Lord, picturing Christ, going back to Leviticus 17.11, how life is in the blood, so on and so forth. Two groups of people, Cain and Abel, you've got two books. And I caught a debate last night, a very interesting debate, a creationist, debating an atheist. And it always staggers me when you listen to these sorts of debates, always involving uh, professional debaters, privileged people. But it always comes down to this, that the atheist will attack this book, the King James Bible, close the book, they say, don't read the book, it can't be trusted, so on and so forth, and yet they are believing in a book, Origin of the Species. So really, there's just two books, the Bible or Origin of the Species, there's Cain or there's Abel. That's all there is to it. You're either in Christ or you are not. So bring an offering to the Lord, a free will offering, verse 2, has to come from the heart, not like through a ritual, like going to Mass this morning, as many people will be doing in the UK, or going to your 
mosque, not today of course, but on a, on a Friday, or synagogue on a Saturday. It is interesting, isn't it? And I'll say this very quickly and finally, that when it comes to religions, we are the only people that know where we are going upon death. We are the only people that have had an atonement given to us. All other religious groups are hoping for heaven, but can't be sure of it. And that's what I think distinguishes us from all of the other groups. Bring an offering, every man that giveth it willingly, that's the key, willingly, with his heart, ye shall take my offering. Look at verse uh, 7 again. Stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplates. So if you think of an ephod, you think of a garment of some kind, and straight away you think of a counterfeit. There's always a counterfeit, isn't there? Like Cain and Abel. There's one good example of a counterfeit. You've got Abel bringing a lamb to the Lord, picture of Christ. And you've got Cain bringing his works to the Lord, picture of a Roman Catholic, a Jew or a Hindu. But here the priest is to wear stones in the ephod. The ephod is a garment. But if you think of the Freemasons, they like to counterfeit this. They have a priest system and they wear their sash. And every July in Northern Ireland, they march. I remember some years ago, I got into a email, brief email correspondence with Ian Paisley's son about the Orange Order, a Masonic organization in Northern Ireland. And to cut a long story short, I said to Ian Paisley's son, Kyle, from memory, I said, should your father be marching with the Orange Order? Your father is a minister, a five-point Calvinist, going back to how verse two shows that we have free will. We aren't slaves to bondage or slaves to sin as it were we choose to do right or wrong yes we are born in sins dead in trespasses and sins but we still have enough light to know right from wrong and i said to paisley jr i said should your father be marching with the orange order a masonic organization with their orange sashes and i said to him and by the way is your father a freemason and he said no my father's not a freemason and i had to leave it there i couldn't disprove it but the point is this verse Seven speaks about a priest with stones in the ephod, probably 12 stones, and in the breastplates, and straight away you are presented with a counterfeit. Satan is a counterfeit. Satan is an angel. Jesus Christ is called the angel of the Lord. Satan is referred to as a lion. Jesus Christ was referred to as a lion. Satan has a church. Jesus Christ has a church. Satan has a book. Jesus Christ has a book. Satan has disciples. Jesus Christ has disciples. Again, it's Cain or Abel. It's the Bible or Darwin. That's what it comes down to. And one other quick footnote, this debate last night. 3,000 denominations were put forward. They would like to use that old chestnut. Not 3,000, not 2,000, not 1,000, not 500. Two. Two denominations. One teaches faith and works, like the Church of Rome, Church of England. Judaism, a non-Christian religion, obviously. Islam, a non-Christian religion. And then you've got Bible-believing Bible Christians like myself. We believe that we are saved through faith in Christ alone, Bible alone. When the Bible is opened and read, God is speaking. That's what we believe, that's what we hold to. So two religions, Bible alone, faith alone, contrast that to all of the other groups that don't accept the Bible alone, being sola scriptura, or faith alone, being sola fide. If you will, we are in the line of Abel, not Cain. We follow the Bible, not Darwin. Stones to be set in the ephod, 12, like I say, representing the 12 tribes of Israel. The Lord Jesus Christ would choose them out, 12 apostles, and in the breastplates. But of course, you've got a counterfeit. The Freemasons dress up with their sashes. And you think of the Mormons, they have a priest system, the Aaronic priest system, the Melchizedek priest system. And of course, if you read the book of Hebrews, it says how the Melchizedek priesthood is non-transferable. 
They can't have a priest system. It's counterfeit. Don't you know that? It's a counterfeit. But it continues to confuse people. And if you're not saved, you have no idea what you are up against. Look at verse 20, please. And the cherubims shall stretch forth their wings on high, covering the mercy seat with their wings. And their faces shall look one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubims be. I think it's Matthew chapter 10. From memory, where the Lord uh, says how... If you confess me before men, I will confess you before my father. And over in Luke, the cross reference, it says, and I will confess you in the presence of my father and the holy angels. So cherubim's Old Testament picture something which is going on in heaven, going back to what I said last week, that what Moses was shown wasn't only coming from the Lord, obviously, on the mount, but what the Lord was showing Moses was going on in heaven. Whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth is loosed in heaven. Difficult to really understand that, but you understand, hopefully, that what we do down here is being replicated up in heaven. Cherubims stretch forth their wings on high, verse 20, covering the mercy seat. Of course, for the temple, the cherubims were a lot larger over here. They are smaller because the tabernacle is going to be moved around. It is mobile, covering the mercy seat with their wings. Elsewhere it speaks about six wings, two would cover their eyes, two would cover their feet, and two would allow them to move around. Covering their eyes because they are in the presence of deity, covering their feet because they are in the presence of deity. On two occasions, when man first came into, presence, uh, came into the presence of deity, like Joshua, like Moses, the Lord would say to both gentlemen, take off your shoes, for you are on holy ground. But here the Jews are being invited to enter into proximity into a relationship with the lord heaven comes to earth basically heaven comes to earth matthew chapter 3 repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand matthew chapter 4 repent for the kingdom of god is at hand jesus christ has both kingdoms available should anybody wish to receive it but this mercy seat goes back to the judgment seat of christ christ sits at the judgment seat the beamer seat satan's seat his power base mentioned twice in Revelation. You've got Moses' uh, judgment seat, Matthew 23, where the Jews would come to him, sometimes in their thousands. And old Jethro on one occasion would say to Moses, this is too much for you. You will wear yourself out. You have to delegate. You have to pick yourself out men that will uh, be able to help you, men that hate covetousness, honest men, so on and so forth. And later on, the Lord would say to Moses, do just that. Appoint yourself, men, to assist you in the day-to-day -day runnings the day-to-day -day activities of a theocracy remember the jews for the old testament they lived by sight they walked by sight when moses arrived you got signs and wonders you got miracles all over the place but for today we live by faith we have no priest system we don't have to go to a church building per se the scripture says where two or three gather in my name there am i in the midst of thee and i think about these british cabinet minister uh, cabinet ministers members of the government, very powerful men, very influential men, very wealthy men, in church this morning, and on their knees, like I say, when the priest rings the bell, holds up the wafer, and I should know, I used to serve Mass, as did Patrick, and these powerful men have got no idea where they're going upon death, and yet, when they go back to their offices in Whitehall, they can sign documents, they can allow the, the, uh, the uh, spy world, the espionage world, MI6, MI5, 
Five, to watch people, to follow people, to listen to people's phone calls. They could order a military strike anywhere around the world. I mean, that's how powerful these men are. And yet you ask them where they are going upon death. They have no idea. No idea. That's a pitiful aspect of organised religion. And it's an affront to me. It's the religion of Cain, you see. Not able. And that's why the Lord Jesus Christ would say, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Preach the gospel. This week, Patrick was in town. and He bumped into an old friend of ours, a street preacher, who works the streets on a regular basis. And this guy drives to Liverpool twice a week. This guy comes to our town maybe once a week. This man works on his own, has almost no backup. A decent man, probably a bit charismatic, but his heart's in the right place. And he's on the streets three or four times a week. He's holding down a part-time job. And you see this gentleman... And he said this to Patrick, he said, uh, I don't get into conversations with Catholics anymore or Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses. It's a a waste of time. That's been my motto, incidentally, for the last seven or eight years. Last week, we had some friends visit us from New York. We sat down with them over a coffee and it was an interesting meetup. A brother in the Lord came over with some unsaved family members. And one of the unsaved family members was a devout Roman Catholic. And I sat down with this relative over a coffee a latte i think it was not a very nice latte (laughs) but i sat down with this relative and we locked horns we locked horns as did patrick with this member of this family from america like i say and it's always the same thing isn't it if i wasn't who i am if i wasn't having a coffee with this person if i hadn't laid my cards on the table this person wouldn't give me the time of day you see we are proactive as bible believers we take the gospel to unsaved people. We don't sit back on the defensive. And here, here am I having a coffee with this family from New York, like I say, and it gets into some pretty deep stuff like Roman Catholicism. But I said this afterwards on the way back home with Patrick. I said, uh, if we weren't known to be former Catholics, if she didn't know who we were, if I hadn't opened my mouth about the gospel, she wouldn't have opened her mouth to me. And it's like all these people I've met over the years. They don't take the initiative. They don't go around to people saying, are you saved? Are you going to heaven upon death? The Church of Rome is the one true church. They don't give anybody the time of day. They couldn't care less about these people. It's only until you, it's only when you challenge them. It's only when you start to ask them questions uh, or start to sow seeds of doubt, undermine what they are trusting in. Do they start to kick back like the Mormons, like the Catholics, like the Jehovah's Witnesses? But you've got a mercy seat, verse 20. A mercy seat is a picture of God's grace. The Jews walk by Sight, like I say, pre the law, they walked and lived by faith. But post the law, once the Jews went into the promised land, they lived by faith, of course, but also by sight, mainly by sight. And the Jews needed somewhere to go to atone for their sins. Everyone has a conscience, unless, of course, you really destroyed it through loose living. But if you go back to the Old Testament, the Jews were conscious of their sins. For the New Testament, Christians are conscious of their sins. When I sin, I know that I have sinned. And First John says, I am to confess my sins. James speaks about confessing your faults. Faults and sins are not the same thing. And sometimes, if you look at these modern Bibles, they change uh, repentance to do penance. You've got to watch these people. They're so slippery, like the serpent in the garden. So the mercy seat for the Old Testament was a place where the high priest would enter once a year, put the blood of the animal on to the mercy seat and it was a covering for one's sins and maybe next week we will look at hebrews to get a much deeper meaning to this mercy seat we need mercy for today i've been a christian 17 years i need mercy and i'm sure that you need mercy but you've got two cherubims stretched forth their wings on high covering the mercy seat with their wings 
faces look one to the other. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubims be. So this is obviously a picture of what is going on in heaven. We have New Jerusalem to look forward to. The Jews had, like I say, heaven coming to earth. They needed somewhere to go. They needed somewhere to have their sins covered. We go to the Saviour. We go to the one that gave the Jews the law. The Jews were saved by believing on a promise. We got saved by believing on the one that gave the promise. Look at verse 21. And thou shalt put the mercy seats above upon the ark. And in the ark thou shalt put the testimony that I shall give thee. The testimony going back to the pot of manna, tables of the law, and Aaron's rod. Three objects, possibly in a loose sort of a way, picturing the Trinity Father, Son, and Spirit. The Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Testament, was was uh, was carried. And last week we talked about that. They would carry it. The Levites would carry it. It was uh, heavy, obviously. At least four men would carry it. It was also valuable, precious. But of course, with everything that's good, there's a counterfeit. The Church of Rome, up until 1965, would carry their Pope around Vatican Square. And I've seen pictures and videos of... Pius XII, John Twenty-Third, Paul VI, being carried like a god around Vatican Square. And every time I see that, and I see those pictures, or I read about these so-called Holy Fathers, a blasphemous title, and anybody who calls himself Holy Father is in hell today, that's God's name, John 18. The, uh, the quickest way to know that the Church of Rome and their popes are all lost in hell is when they enjoy that title, Holy Father. Jesus Christ said that his Father is Holy Father, God. Is Holy Father. And you've got these Catholics, ignorant Papists, carrying the Pope around Vatican Square up until 1965. Not 1065, not 565, not 665, but 1965. It's a crude counterfeit. Going back to Cain or Abel. Abel brings forth a lamb, the Lord accepts it. There is life in the blood, Leviticus 17:11. Cain brings forth his fruit. Like the Catholics, look at my works, aren't I a wonderful man? And what does Jesus say over in Matthew chapter 7? Many will say to me that day, Lord, Lord, we've done many wonderful works, many, many wonderful works. Prophesied in your name, cast out devils in your name. And he says to them, I never knew you depart from me. It's a counterfeit, you see. So the Ark of the Testament, Ark of the Covenant was literal, it was holy, it was sacred. And tragically, the Church of Rome had been counterfeiting it for centuries. Look at verse 22. And there I will meet with thee. And I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubims, which upon the ark of the testimony of all things which I will give thee in commandment unto the children of Israel. I will meet you there. That's amazing. I, God is speaking, will meet you there. And on top of that, I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat. Doesn't sit on the mercy seat until perhaps the thousand year reign of the Lord Jesus Christ when he sits on the mercy seats like i said last week and a few minutes ago you've got at least three other seats in scripture judgment seat for the saved satan's seats where he controls his power base in the uk we have members of parliament and when they are elected into parliament they win a seat not a literal seat it's a metaphorical description for power and they go to parliament and they sit in parliament a seat is a picture of authority in america they have senators and congressmen they have a place where they go into the two houses and they, and they sit down, picturing authority. Moses, of course, has a seat where he sits to judge Israel. Uh, judge Israel. But for the Old Testament, pre the temple, the tabernacle, was on the move. You've got around three million Jews walking in the desert for 40 years. 
For 40 days and 40 nights, Moses is up on the mount. For 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus Christ is being tempted by the devil in the wilderness. 40 days and 40 nights, Elijah is being sustained by the Lord. Make a note of these numbers, these figures. And there, verse 22, I will meet with thee, and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubims, which are upon the ark of the testimony, of all things which I will give thee in commandment unto the children of Israel. This is for the Jews, not the church. And again, if you're not a dispensationalist, how in the world do you deal with these verses? People like to say, uh, James, do you keep the Sabbath? And I say no. I observe the first day of the week. Christ came up out of the tomb on the first day of the week. The Holy Ghost came down from heaven on the first day of the week. The church met on the first day of the week to break bread, like today. To read the word of God, like today. To rejoice in the Lord, like today. We are Christians, not Jews. We are spiritual Jews, but we are not physical Jews. We are spiritual Israel, but not physical, literal Israel. So I don't spend five minutes worrying about the Sabbath, but it does get put to me many times by Messianic people. But here's the thing. To not keep the Sabbath in the Old Testament would mean death. To touch the Ark of the Covenant in an irreverent, unholy or unworthy manner would result in one's death. But I got saved 17 years ago. I reached out to the Lord. He reached out to me and he keeps me saved. I want to stress that. He keeps me saved. I don't keep myself saved. I don't believe in, condi in uh, conditional security. Unfortunately, most people do. I don't believe in that. I believe once a payment has been provided, going back to the mercy seat, meaning propitiation, and that word propitiation is found over in the book of Romans, means to appease the wrath of God concerning our sin and to render one favourable in the sight of God. Do you realise that we are a royal priesthood? Not a physical priesthood, but a royal priesthood. And yet in the Old Testament, they had a physical priesthood. We have a high priest who is in heaven, intercedes for us. The Holy Ghost is also interceding for us. We break bread every Sunday. But for the Old Testament, not, not only would they break bread in a symbolical sort of a way, they would also uh, literally kill animals. The animal that uh, I am connected to has already been killed, the Lamb of God. Major, major differences concerning the Old and the New Testaments. Law and grace. Look at verse 23 concerning the table of showbread. Showbread. Thou shalt also make a table of sheet and wood. Two cubits shall be the length thereof, and a cubit the breadth thereof, and a cubit and a half the height thereof. Back to the measurements again. So two cubits would be around three feet. Cubits in breadth was around two feet, and a cubit and a half the height thereof also two feet. Not particularly big uh, also. The temple was a lot larger, obviously. The third temple, which Ezekiel speaks about and Revelation speaks about, is pretty enormous. Mm. But for the Old Testament, because the Jews were on the move, a mobile people, if you will, it wouldn't be convenient to carry the uh, Ark of the Covenant if it was too large, obviously. So it has been condensed. And here the table is laid out to be basically two foot, make that three foot, Three foot by two foot. Not particularly large, but large enough for the priest to do what he needs to do. Twenty-four. And thou shalt overlay it with pure gold. And make thereto a crown of gold round about. Crown of gold, pure gold. Picturing deity. Again, gold is the highest commodity on the face of the earth. Also, it doesn't rot, doesn't perish. Picturing wood, hay and stubble. First Corinthians chapter 3. Like our works when we hit the judgment seat. Or going back to what I said last week, 
Gold represents the winner. The winner of a race, silver, represents a second. And brass or bronze represents the third. Rewards, Olympics. Do you understand the analogy? I'm sure you do. But gold is precious. It's priceless. Picturing deity. It starts with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Triune God. And here the gold is pure gold. Crown of gold, roundabout, cannot perish. This creation is very costly. And again, the Levites wouldn't only carry it, they would also protect it. 25. And thou shalt make unto it a border of an handbreadth roundabout. And thou shalt make a golden crown to the border thereof roundabout. Gold, gold, gold. Gold, silver, and gold. So obvious, isn't it? Do you think of Solomon, the wisest man? on the face of the earth, had wisdom like nobody ever had, pre or post him, had the whole world at his feet. And yet what would the Lord Jesus Christ say? What does it, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? I'm not saying that Solomon was lost. I think he was saved. But he had wealth. He had prestige. He had land. When he was in control of Israel, he had the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. He had the whole world almost at his disposal. The queen of Sheba would come to visit him and yet, from memory, only 13 words, 13 words, explain her arrival and exit. Interesting, isn't it? isn't it? 13 words. They have made movies about Sheba. They've made movies about Solomon, their so-called love affair. But you won't find that in scripture. Caesar is mentioned two, three times in the Gospels. Luke mentions him. Luke chapter 2, from memory. Luke chapter 3. No more than five times in the entire New Testament. And yet, people like Rahab, people like Aaron's sons, people like Miriam's sister, and of course Miriam is Hebrew for Mary, are mentioned more times than Caesar and Sheba. And the reason for that is quite simply down to the fact that Sheba and Caesar have no relationship to Christ. No involvement with him. Not part of his line whatsoever. But... Rahab is connected to him, Matthew chapter 1. The sisters of Mary, sons of Zebedee, are connected to Jesus Christ. And Aaron's sons are connected to the Levites in the thousand-year reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. 26. And thou shalt make it for four rings of gold, and put the rings in the four corners that on the four feet thereof. Over against the border shall the rings be for Places of the staves to bear the table. Hold up the table. And thou shalt make the staves of sheet and wood. Acacia wood. Acacia wood. Sheet and wood. And overlay them with gold. Gold, gold, gold. That the table may be born with them. This table couldn't be buckled. Wouldn't buckle. Wouldn't collapse. This table would last indefinitely. And thou shalt make the dishes thereof. And spoons thereof. And covers thereof. And bowls thereof. To cover with all. Of pure gold shalt thou make them, and thou shalt set upon the table showbread before me always. Showbread, bread. Jesus Christ, a bread from heaven. He comes down from heaven, and on one occasion they thought he was going to feed them physically, and yes, he would on many occasions, but he came to feed them spiritually. Every time we feed on him, we get nourishment, if you will. Somebody once said, We are leaky vessels, and that's very true. And that's why you should begin your day praying and asking the Lord to fill you with his spirits. And at the end of the day, confessing your sins to him and asking him to cleanse you of your sins. 
Thou shalt make the dishes thereof, spoons thereof, 29, covers thereof, bowls thereof, to cover withal, of pure gold shalt thou make them. The priest back in the Old Testament was like a butcher, basically. Animals would be brought to the priest once a year. He would go into the Holy of Holies, like I say, put the blood on the mercy seats. But you've got sacrifices taking place, not just once a year, but on a regular basis. He is cutting up the animal, picturing the penalty of sin. Sin is horrible. Sin isn't something to be proud about. That's why the uh, patriarchs, even before the law, were told to get the animal, put your hand around the neck of the animal and cut its throat. That shows you what God thinks of sin. God sent his son to die for the sins of the world. He died the most awful death imaginable, crucified, naked, on a Roman cross for six hours. you got people mocking him, gambling for his clothing. His mother's weeping. John, the son of Zebedee, is comforting his mother. And you've got a few other people that are watching the sinless son of God, suffering die for the sins of the world. That goes some way in denoting what sin is all about. The Apostle Paul was a good man, a saved man, and yet the Lord would buffet him day after day, really put him through the mill. Job was a good man back in the Old Testament, and the Lord would also buffet him and put him through the mill. If those two gentlemen, Job, Old Testament, Paul, New Testament, could go through that, and Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God, to show us what sin is all about, what would he do to unsaved people? Wouldn't spare his son? Wouldn't spare Paul? Wouldn't spare Job? Yes, Job comes through at the end of the book of Job. And Paul was able to rejoice that his saviour lived. And would say, I finished the race that the Lord has set for me. So on and so forth. But didn't those guys go through it? Picturing what sin is all about. And didn't the son of God go through it? Picturing what sin is all about. So you got from 29 bowls, uh, spoons, dishes. Cut the animal up. Separate the internal organisms. 30, and thou shalt set upon the table showbread before me always. So every Sabbath, the priests would eat the showbread. The showbread in the holy place, basically. 12 loaves of bread found over in Leviticus. Jesus Christ, like I say, is the bread of life. 12 loaves, picturing the 12 tribes of Israel. For the church, 12 apostles. Revelation 4 speaks about 24 seats. And obviously the 12... Well, the first uh, part of the 24 would be the apostles, 12 apostles of the Lamb. But he got 12 more seats that are vacant. And I've often thought, could those 12 seats be Jacob's 12 sons? I'm not too sure. It's possible that the other 12 seats are going to be for the top 12 men in the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Noah, Daniel. Over in Jeremiah, it says, had Noah, Daniel and Job lived during the time of Jeremiah before the Babylonian captivity. Even... If those guys were alive, I still wouldn't spare Israel for her sin. Going back to Abraham interceding on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah. And the Lord would say to Abraham, if I can find ten, I will spare all of this territory. If I can find five, I will spare all of this territory. In the end, it was just Lot and two daughters. And as a result, God burns up the whole lot. 31 and I'll close. And thou shalt make a candlestick of pure gold. Of beaten work shall the candlestick be made. His shaft and his branches, his bowls, his knops and his flowers shall be of the same. His, not it. His, personal pronoun. It, candlestick, menorah, a light. The light was to assist the priest to 
prepare the meals if you were to prepare the sacrifice. Jesus Christ is the light of the world. And here, this candlestick is of pure gold. Going back to Revelation 2, 3 and 4. Unto the angel write, and the angel, or angels back in Revelation, would be assigned to look over churches, referred to as candlesticks. And thou shalt make a candlestick of pure gold. Of beaten work shall the candlestick be made. His shaft, not its shaft, his shaft. And his branches, his bowls, his knobs, like knobs. And his flowers shall be of the same. So the Lord goes into more detail, explaining this golden candlestick, menorah, which of course gives light to the priests. And the candlestick, obviously, is a light or type of Christ, who is our light. And this also feeds into the sevenfold spirit found over in Isaiah chapter 11. So the more you think about this, the more you get some imagery, I hope, of what it was like for the Jews back in the Old Testament, approaching Jehovah via the priest. Today, Catholics approach the Lord via a priest. Not necessary. If you want to be saved, you come to the priest of priests, Lord of lords, King of kings, God of gods. You go straight to him and he will receive you. But for the Old Testament, the route to heaven was a little different. Still grace. It's always going to be grace. Uh, that's made very clear from the book of Romans, chapter 4, verses 1, 2, 3, and 4. But how the Lord would dispense grace is obviously different. The Jews, back in the Old Testament, were saved by believing in a promise, going back to Abraham. And part of that promise would involve the tabernacle, the show of bread, the candlestick, animal sacrifices to cover their sins, not to take away their sins. Whereas we've had our sins removed, covered, pardoned, Colossians chapter 2. And we are saved by believing in the one who gave the promise back in the Old Testament. But I hold it there. And next week, Lord willing, go through these verses one more time and try and pull these all together. Please go back to verse 8 from Exodus chapter 25. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. Keep your hand there and go to Hebrews chapter 8, scripture with scripture. It's the only way. To understand the scripture, Hebrews chapter 8, Hebrews chapter 8, look at verse 1 please. Now the things which we have spoken, this is a sum. We have such an high priest, who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. So straight away you see there are two tabernacles, go back to Exodus chapter 25. In Exodus chapter 25, it's a physical one, made with hands. Contrast that to a spiritual one. Up in the third heaven, Jesus Christ, of course, being our high priest, minister of the sanctuary. A minister means a servant of the true tabernacle, which the Lord, which the Lord, which the Lord pitched and not man. But from Exodus 25, 5, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. Fellowship, intimate fellowship. So basically, we are priests of the Lord. The showbread is ours to feed on. We have a place at this divine table to bask in the lights of the Holy Ghost, invited by the Father, welcomed by the blood of his Son. Father, Son, and Spirit. Only the world, the flesh, and the devil can hamper us from feasting and partaking of this intimate fellowship, meal, relationship, if you will. Look at verse 15 again from Exodus chapter 25. The staves shall be in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. I love the attention to detail. 
you are looking at a very holy object. Basically, you've got three items of furniture to be built to go inside of this tabernacle. But verse 15, the staves being uh, wood, of course, shall be in the rings of the ark. Now the rings are going to be painted gold as well. They shall not be taken from it. So the rings would have to remain in the ark. You couldn't remove the rings from the ark. If you were to remove the rings from the ark, you would desecrate this basic box. A rectangular wooden chest or box of some kind. The more I read this part of scripture, the more I am perplexed to some extent. It is a mysterious piece of scripture. Like the mystery of iniquity, like the mystery of godliness. One more time, verse 15. The staves shall be in the rings of the ark. They shall not, they shall not, they shall not be taken from it. So once the rings, once this sheet and wood, also referred to as acacia or acacia wood, once the poles were put into the hooks, once the poles went into the hooks, they would remain in such a location. Also keep in mind that the tabernacle would be moved around. This was a mobile home, if you will, and the rings are holy. Everything that is attached to this rectangular box is holy. So last week we finished in verse 31. Let's begin in verse 32 and let's aim to finish chapter 25. And six branches shall come out of the sides of it, Three branches of the candlestick out of the one side, and three branches of the candlestick out of the other side. Three bowls made like unto almonds, with a knop and a flower in one branch, and three bowls made like almonds in the other branch, with a knop and a flower. So in the six branches that come out of the candlestick, candlestick, menorah, the priest would need a light to see what he was doing, obviously, and the typology is... Incredible. For example, the mercy seat pictures a seat, obviously. The lamp pictures a light and the bread pictures substance. Basically, what you're reading about this morning is the home of Jesus Christ, basically. Jesus Christ would reveal his home to Moses. Moses would build it. Moses had a photographic memory. Hebrews 8, Hebrews 10, the Lord Jesus Christ's home, tabernacle, not pitched by man, but of God, is up in the third heaven. So what takes place on the earth is being mirrored up in heaven. 34. And in the candlestick shall be four bowls made like unto almonds, with their knops and their flowers. And there shall be a knop under two branches of the same, and a knop under two branches of the same, and a knop under two branches of the same, according to the six branches that proceed out of the candlestick. It's like a tree. Could be a picture of the tree of life. Genesis 2. A tree arrives. Revelation 2, Revelation 22, the tree returns. Revelation 2, Revelation 22, the tree is in paradise. Before man fell, he was in paradise, also referred to as Eden. 36, their knops and their branches shall be of the same, and it shall be one beaten work of pure gold. Back to that term again, gold. Gold is precious, gold is valuable. If a currency starts to decline, like sterling, they go to the gold. In America, I think up until the mid-1930s, gold was used to underwrite the dollar. No longer. No longer. I heard a while ago that the value of a dollar is around 35 cents. 
40 cents. Most Americans don't know that, but their currency isn't as strong as they would like to believe. Sterling, at the moment, is at an all-time low. Good for businesses in the UK, not so good for Brits going abroad. Their pound doesn't buy them so much. Pure gold. Paul says how the love of money is the root of all evil. The love of the money. Not money itself, but the love of the money. You can't tell people how to spend their money, incidentally. I remember some years ago, we knew a brother who was interested in a woman, shall we say, a charismatic woman, a bus driver, and it started off all very well, and he was trying to aid her. He was trying to counsel her. He was trying to assist her. Basically, she was naive, shall we say. She was giving money to very dubious ministries, and he would say to this bus driver, are you still supporting such and such a ministry? And of course, she would get rather embarrassed. Over a period of time, he was almost stalking her, almost stalking her. And it got too much, and one of her fellow bus drivers on one occasion saw him and almost attacked him. It was quite a sight to behold. You can't tell people how to spend their money. That woman was a grown woman, saved probably, but very naive, very impressionable, giving money to multi-million pound ministries. But here, pure gold, going back to the tabernacle, going back to one of three items of furniture built by Moses. Moses is a type of the Messiah. Moses is a carpenter, if you will. Messiah was a carpenter. Look at 37. And thou shalt make the seven lamps thereof, and they shall light the lamps thereof, that they may give light over against it. So a light, a lamp, pictures Jesus Christ. I am the light of the world. The bread pictures Jesus Christ, the bread which came down from heaven. Now, if you're not a saved person, you don't understand these verses, do you? If you are a typical conservative Jew, and you probably read the Torah on a regular basis, you don't get the cross-references. Because you don't believe the New Testament, because you don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, because you are a resurrection denier, you miss out on a fuller picture to this. The Bible is like a football match. I've used this analogy many times before, but a football match has two halves. The first half is 45 minutes, the second half is 45 minutes. Could you imagine going to a football match and watching the first 45 minutes and then during the break going home? What's the point of going in the first place? You want to see the entire match, the entire game, of course you do. Well, that's how the Bible is. Part 1, Old Testament. Part 2, New Testament. New Testament. From Malachi to Matthew, you have a 400 year period of silence. That's a picture of a 15 minute break between the two 45 minutes parts of a match during the break you stretch your legs have a cup of coffee or whatever whatever and you go back to enjoy the second and final half all the law and the prophets prophesied about jesus christ matthew chapter 11 all the prophets and the law ended were fulfilled in john the baptist matthew chapter 11 and thou shalt make the seven lamps thereof and they shall light the lamps thereof that they may give light over against it. Worth reading out a second time. So Jesus Christ is the light of the world. Let there be light, and there was light. The priest is a picture of the Messiah. As of right now, we have a high priest in heaven. Hebrews 8, Hebrews 10, interceding for us every time we sin and we confess our sins to the Lord. He is able to cleanse us of our sins. And one more time, what takes place on earth is being duplicated, replicated, mirrored up in heaven. You can't really understand that, can you? 
But that's what is taking place. 38. And the tongs thereof, and the snuff dishes thereof, shall be a pure gold. So it doesn't fade away. Your faith is more important than pure gold. Gold will last all year round, four seasons. The Jews would be in the wilderness for 40 years. No big problem for the Lord to sustain them, to carry them, take, uh, take care of their physical needs. And therefore, for this tabernacle, referred to as the home of the Lord, the tent, later the temple which Solomon would build, these products, these parts of the Lord's home, if you will, have to last indefinitely. I mean, it's pretty simple, isn't it, really? Verse 39. Of a talent of pure gold shall he make it with all these vessels. So one more time, you've got cups, you've got bowls. Cups would be for the incense. Incense was a common part of the Old Testament. Acts chapter 10, it speaks about the prayers of Cornelius. And incense is related, connected to the prayers of Cornelius. Throughout the book of Revelation, incense also is mentioned. In the Catholic Church, they have incense. Every time you go to Mass, you have to, uh, if you are an altar boy, and I was for a period of time, and so was Patrick, you would be a partaker of the, I hate to say this, ongoing sacrifice, the non-bloody sacrifice. It's a blasphemy, of course, and part of the Mass would be to witness the incense, especially during the Tridentine Mass, which they still like to use. A lot of conservative Catholics in this country, and I'm thinking of one cabinet minister, a very powerful Catholic, is very much a lover of the Tridentine Mass. It is, of course, a blasphemy. Christ has died once for the sins of the world, was buried once for the sins of the world, was resurrected once for the sins of the world, would be ascended into heaven once, you repented once, you were forgiven once, the universe was created once. But for some people, they don't get it, they don't, they don't want to get it. Of a talent, of pure gold. Now, a talent would be worth... For memory, around fifteen to twenty thousand pounds. In American money, probably forty to forty-five thousand pounds. In European European money, probably around forty thousand euros or thereabouts, don't quote me. It's a lot of money. Solomon would be the wealthiest man in the ancient world, and it would speak about Sheba coming to visit him, and he had a lot of wealth, and I think for memory the Total amounts of his wealth came to 666 666 grams of gold, silver. And one of my commentaries suggests that Solomon is a type of the Antichrist. I don't believe that. 666 for Revelation is linked to the Antichrist, of course. But 666, going back to Solomon, isn't linked to Antichrist per se. Solomon was a complex man, had two natures, if you will. Uh, but of course, the last chapter of Ecclesiastes speaks about the whole counsel of God, fear God, keep his commandments, this is the whole duty of man, so on and so forth. So gold is pictured time after time. Nothing is too impractical. Nothing is unworthy of your giving to the Lord. Go back to Cain, go back to Abel. Abel brings a lamb, valuable asset. Cain brings fruit, invaluable, worthless. Two types of people, and here Moses, speaking to the people of Israel, going back to verse 2. He wants a willing heart, so the Lord loves a cheerful giver. It is more blessed to give than to receive. 
Don't the charismatics love that one? And the more you give to the Lord, Old Testaments, and even New Testaments, the more he will give you. But to go beyond that and start to push the tithe, the lie, is an abomination. For the Old Testament, tithing, like 10%, yes, did take place to, first of all, go towards the upkeep of the temple, priest system, and also the cost towards the choir and uh, the worship service, if you will, and also to take care of the poor and needy. For now, we have no priest system. We have no temple to upkeep. We have no choir system, per se. Poor people, yes, they should be taken care of. Uh, nothing wrong with that. But you've got two very different, very different dispensations. And it's critical that we get this clear. Otherwise, you start to back load of the gospel. You teach John 3.16, plan of salvation, and then you start to add to that. But are you doing this? Are you doing that? Are you tithing? Are you a member of a particular church? Do you do this? Do you do that? Have you stopped doing this? Have you stopped doing that? Are you doing this? And are you doing that? You start to cripple such a person. Verse 40, and we will close. And look that thou make them after their pattern, which was showed thee in the mount. So Moses spends 40 days and 40 nights up on the mount with the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, second member of the Trinity. Everything that was dictated to Moses, if you will, shown to Moses, Moses has been able to retain a photographic memory. People like Winston Churchill had a photographic memory. Uh, people like John F. Kennedy had a photographic memory. Some of the greatest actors like Laurence Olivier, uh, Redgrave, some of the great Shakespearean actors could read an entire script like uh, Henry V, Macbeth, and other greats. And those uh, performances, those plays, can run 15, 20, 25 minutes. Mm. I remember watching a bit of uh, Henry V, made during World War II. Lance Olivier, one of Britain's finest actors, and he came onto the scene, a one-take shot, one camera, one angle, and he spoke for 27 minutes. Mm. All from memory. Henry V, try it sometime. That's quite an achievement. But for Moses, what he is seeing, he is retaining, going back to Winston Churchill, working 18 hours a day, seven days a week, being briefed all the time, remembering, retaining everything that he was shown. Probably the greatest politician of the 20th century, Kennedy, during the 1960s, would skim briefing papers, could retain 90% of what he was able to see, whereas other politicians would have to be briefed again and again and again and again. I'm thinking of people like George W. Bush, Bush Jr., and even some British Prime Ministers. And look that they'll make them after their pattern. What I've shown you, Moses, I want you to duplicate. Don't add, don't subtract. Going back to the Word of God, Revelation 22, if you add, you're in trouble. If you subtract, you are in trouble. Moses, you're going to build me a seat, a table, and a lampstand, basically. I want to sit, I want to eat, I want to enjoy the light. It's a picture of a home, basically. But it's very ostentatious because this creation of Moses, via the Lord Jesus Christ, of course, is going to have to, uh, going to, have to last 40 plus years. Everything that was shown to Moses would have to be built. Later on, a Jew from the tribe of Judah would be instrumental in building a seat, mercy seat, table, wooden table, like I say, and the lampstand, the menorah. 
So just very basically wrap up this three part message. The cups, like I say, would be for incense. The bowls would be for the liquids. The sacrifice would result in liquids from the animals, obviously. We've looked at the seat, the table, and the lampstand. A picture of a home, the Lord Jesus Christ's home. God's home, bread and light, picturing God always there. Emmanuel, God with us. Moses has been instructed to build three items, a good number, three items of furniture for the Lord's home inside a tent. It would be a rectangular wooden chest or box, picturing the main parts of the tents, of course. The gold rings and poles wouldn't perish, wouldn't be corrupted. The lid of the ark was also designated to act as an atonement. The judgment seat of Christ for the saved, great white throne for the lost. But for the Old Testament, for the high priest to enter once a year, an annual ritual where he would offer blood, basically, on the lid of the ark. Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. This wooden table would have rings and poles, like I say. For today, we would say plates, dishes, utensils. It's an ongoing sacrifice. The priest would never sit down. He's always standing because the sacrifice is an ongoing one. The lampstand has seven lamps decorated with flower-like cups, buds and blossoms, and possibly, perhaps, a picture of the tree of life. Genesis chapter 2, like I say, Adam and Eve, make that Genesis chapter 3, excuse me, Genesis chapter 3, and also Revelation chapter 2 and Revelation 22. The tree appears, Eden, Genesis chapter 3, and the tree reappears, Revelation 2, Revelation 22, concerning paradise, of course. But to go beyond that takes us into the millennium, which takes us into the eternal state which isn't relevant for the message this morning so we'll hold it there this has been a three-week study looking at the tabernacle like i say the table and also the golden candlestick lamp stand menorah if you will picturing jesus christ's eternal light never going out the bread which came down from heaven john chapter 6 and the seat picturing judgment for the saved the lost but for the Message this morning, judgment for the Jews back in the Old Testament, the mercy seat. And we'll hold it there next week, pick it up from Exodus chapter 26.